Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman on another lovely Monday morning. Uh, I, Bruce, I felt like Saturday had a lot of great games, a lot of crazy endings, and yet the big story coming out of it, and this was a story last year as well, obviously, is Tua's ankle. This notion that I, maybe in the couple weeks before it, that I started to see people be uh, start to try to downplay Tua a little bit and be like, oh, it's all his receivers. You know, he just throws a quick pass and they uh, they take it from there. Uh, anybody who still thinks that should have watched the second half of the game once Mac Jones came in at quarterback. Clearly, they are not the same team. And so, I, I you know, you hate to see any player get injured. This one in particular, I'm like, oh no, because. First of all, it happened to him last year. And second of all, I want that Alabama-LSU game on November 9th to be full-strength Tua versus full-strength Joe Burrow. But as the details emerge, and Aaron Suttles had a nice story about this for us yesterday where he talked to a source close to the program who indicated this is this is serious. He's gonna ha- He did have the same procedure Sunday morning that um, he and other Alabama players have had in the past that allows them to recover more quickly from a high ankle sprain than has traditionally been the case. But it definitely sounds like this is going to be cutting it very close to expect him to be um, healthy in time for that game, to be able to play in that game. And even if he does play in that game, is he going to be full strength, 100% Tua? If not, how close is that going to be? And, I mean, I don't be blunt about it. If he's not Tua, I don't think they beat LSU. Yes, Stu, I, I think this is going to be the dominant storyline we're going to hear really till November 9th about the speculation. And look, last year, I think it was four weeks before the playoff, before Tua returned. Obviously, it was the opposite ankle. I don't know if there's a significant difference for a quarterback between left or right, especially for a left-handed quarterback and, and the torque that it puts on it. But, uh, you know, every, every injury is different. LSU actually had the same tightrope deal that uh, procedure that Tua just had with a 
defensive lineman, Glenn Logan. He was out four weeks, not three, but he's a 300-pound guy. I don't know if it's the, the weight of him is different. I don't know if they could have played him a week earlier. I don't know any of that. But we see this more and more. I agree with you, though, that uh, for people who think, oh, you know what, the receivers are so great that they could just jump into the backup and Tua doesn't matter that much. I mean, that's crazy to me. And I think that really this isn't that unique to the top, some of the top teams. When you look at no knock on Mac Jones, who's the backup at, at Alabama, but there is a sizable gap right now between Justin Fields and Ohio State's number two, Chris Chuganov. I think there's a pretty sizable gap between Joe Burrow and Miles Brennan, although Miles Brennan came in with a lot of hype and has a pretty strong arm. He just doesn't run the system the way Burrow does. And I would imagine there's a similar drop-off between Jalen Hurts and Tanner Mordecai. And Alabama was fortunate the last couple of years because they had two terrific quarterbacks who both could step in and, and they wouldn't really miss a beat. And that situation doesn't look like it's the case. What I want to ask you, and this is something we probably can talk a lot more about and probably will talk more about down the road, but we've seen the playoff committee factor in some injuries as to what happens with this big lag. With the NCAA basketball tournament, I remember this coming up with Kenyon Martin in Cincinnati about 20 years ago. Now, obviously, there's a shorter window between Selection Sunday and they're rolling out the basketballs four days later. In this case, there's a you know, there's about a month there if an injury happens late in the year. In this case, though, if LSU were to win in Tuscaloosa and it's not a blowout, and it's not like Alabama has a great non-conference schedule, if they don't get to the SEC title game, if they're sitting there 11-1, and one, and their best win at that point would be against a, an Auburn team that I think would have, or the three losses at that point at least because they would have lost to Florida they would have lost to LSU and they would have lost to Alabama I mean how strong do you think their argument would be to get in the playoff there's a lot to unpack there first of all we have college football playoff committee examples of giving uh, taking an injury into consideration two years ago Clemson lost to a bad Syracuse team on the road and it was like, with it, by the time the committee started doing the rankings, it was like it never happened. And the reason was, well, Kelly Bryant got hurt in that game. Uh, I remember something similar with Oregon many years ago. They would have gotten in anyway, but you know, Jake Fisher being out for the Arizona game, their offensive lineman, got talked about every week on those teleconferences. So there's no question that, and I laid that scenario out in forward pass on Monday, there's no question to me. I, I, I It popped in my head as soon as he got hurt the other night that, you now see this this scenario could happen where if he either doesn't play or clearly isn't himself, LSU wins, heads on to the SEC championship and wins. They're in the playoff. Alabama, Tua catches fire again right after that game. They handle Auburn. They're 11-1. and one. You, I would absolutely see the committee giving them a pass because they know that they're not, they weren't the same team in that LSU game. Now, to your point, though, you know, I think last year's Alabama team was so dominant all season long that when um, when Tua got hurt in the SEC championship game, if Jalen Hurts hadn't led that comeback, if they had lost, I think we all agree they would have been in. Uh, somebody would have gotten, I think Oklahoma would have gotten bounced. To me, you know, this brings up the larger question of, I just don't think this Alabama team, I don't understand why they keep getting voted number one in the country in the AP and coaches polls. Tennessee, and we're going to talk about this play in a minute, 
if if uh, Jared Garantano can sneak in from one yard away, this really bad Tennessee team would have been within one score of Alabama in the fourth quarter of that game. Um, it's like they're exempt from the tree. I mean, Clemson has fallen from first to fourth since the season started. And yeah, they had a close call against UNC. And yeah, their schedule's been soft. But Alabama has moved up from second to number one. Um, you know, the, the AP finally moved Ohio State above Clemson. They finally acknowledged that Ohio State has been so dominant. But why are they only passing Clemson? Why, If you're going to do use that logic, why would they not pass Alabama? So obviously we don't know what the next what they'll look like over the last five games. And we're talking a lot about here about a scenario of Alabama losing to a team they haven't lost to since 2011. So, you know, this is just kind of fun fantasy talk. But I don't know. I, I mean, it would depend on what happens elsewhere. Certainly if Oklahoma and Ohio State, uh, and if, if everybody's undefeated, I don't think that 11-1 and one Alabama team is getting in. But as we know, it's history says some of these teams will lose. You're not probably going to get to Selection Sunday with four undefeated teams. You know, chances are that 11-1 and one Alabama team would be going up against 12-1 and one champions from other conferences. Yeah, look, let's. I, I think this is a case where the injury is, is significant news. It was on, Honestly, I thought it was a really fun Saturday to watch. As you had said earlier on the podcast, I don't know how much big, momentous things happened. Uh, we'll get to, to, to Penn State, Michigan. That was a terrific game. We'll, t- we'll touch on Oregon and Washington. That was a terrific game. But as you alluded to, let's touch on this because I feel like it's a story that got a lot of traction on Saturday night as well as Sunday. And it was in that Alabama-Tennessee game. As you mentioned, there's a botched fourth and goal. It turns into a 100-yard touchdown fumble recovery run back for the Tide and blows the game wide open. Uh, the cameras caught Jeremy Pruitt just berating his his player pointing in his face and then gives a yank of his face mask and we're off to the races from there what's your reaction to it i didn't like it and uh i made the mistake of trying to gauge public opinion on twitter and specifically saying don't please don't respond vols fans because i know they're going to be 100 percent behind their coach but of course that's all i heard back from uh i think it's, it's not that a coach can't get mad at his player. Obviously, that's going to happen. Obviously, it's an emotional game, and, and coaches are going to yell. But I do think that there's a difference between, and we see this all the time, right? A guy, quarterback throws an interception and comes to the sideline, and the coach is upset, but he's trying to, sh- but he's also kind of pointing out, like, hey, this you could have done this instead. Like, it's, it's some sort of instructive thing. Brent Venable screams his head off on the sidelines. And he gets mad at guys for messing up, but he's trying to show them what they could have done instead. The Jeremy Pruitt thing seemed pretty clearly, you just cost us the game, and I'm just going to yell at you and demean you in front of 100,000 people and millions of people watching on television. And as, as reinforced by the fact that he benched him immediately for a guy who had absolutely no business being in the game against Alabama. So, you know, you can debate the finer points of should – is, is it okay or not okay to grab a helmet? Um, you know, like what, what's crossing the line? I think that's a, uh, you know, that's, that's a tough debate to have. But any notion that, well, you just, everybody's just got to toughen up. You're all being soft. Uh, this is football. Uh, this is 2019. And I don't think there's much patience for coaches 
belittling a player like that so visibly. And I think it's pretty telling that guys like Marcus Spears, you know, guys who have actually played the game at a high level recently, were the ones criticizing Pruitt. The, the people who were accusing me or anybody else of being soft were kind of armchair quarterbacks sitting there, Vols fans sitting in their couch who hate Jared Garantano because he's you know hasn't been a very good quarterback. Does it factor in at all to you if the quarterback quote unquote went rogue on the quarterback sneak and didn't do what the play, what a lot of people believe the play was designed to do, which was go outside. He goes over the middle, obviously gets stuffed. Does that change your opinion at all about whether there was some justification for how Pruitt acted in the wake of it? That was another interesting thing, all the immediate conspiracy theory. I mean, everybody just immediately jumped to that, that he went rogue without, I don't know how anybody would know that without knowing what the play call was. Well, I think they're looking at at how some of the pieces around him in terms of what some of the linemen did. And and Pruitt was pretty diplomatic about it afterwards, said there was just a miscommunication. We don't know. We don't know if, if somebody was doing something wrong, whether it was him, whether it was the offensive lineman. I, I don't know. Uh Obviously, if he went rogue, yeah, that's something to be upset about. I, I could see that justifi- justifying him being benched. Uh, I don't know if it justifies the finger pointing and the pointing the helmet and, and just... I mean, at the end of the day, it goes back to something we've talked about on here many times. These are college athletes. These are not pro athletes. And I, I've just, over the years, gotten... I mean, you and I are not going to sit here and rip a college player unless... The, the time I... The, you know, there have been a couple of Tennessee players who have done some off-the-field stuff recently that are absolutely uh, worthy of, of heavy criticism. I, go, sneaking, going over the top, or not going over the top on fourth down doesn't really fit in the same category for me. What about you? Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I've thought about this a little bit just as, you know, it's funny, the reaction to this. As somebody once, I think when I was in ninth grade, and this was during maybe uh, freshman football in in fall camp I do remember getting my face mask yanked and it was it was by a coach who I think is was friendly with my older brother I didn't take take it any way beyond I wasn't doing the right thing now that was probably in the mid 1980s it was not on TV and I was probably 15 years old I don't even know um, this I do wonder, I mean, is it look worse because it's done on national TV? I think we're like parsing this all around. Um, I don't know if I am, I, I, I guess I, I get why people are outraged um, that it happened. And some people are saying, hey, just, you, you just can't, this is crossing a line. Um, I don't think yelling and pointing in somebody's finger, I think, I think people kind of come to accept that in in coaching at times, you know, and I think people get emotional and that's, I think that's, that's given a pass. I am curious at some point we're going to probably hear from this quarterback you know, who's played a lot and was a starter and, and everything. And I'm, I'm curious to see where this is going to go down the road. Um, you know, for Tennessee fans, I think they were uh, given some, some, energy by the, how hard their team played and battled and moved the football. And I think if anything, you know, th- if this happened in a game where they were getting blown off the field and getting embarrassed, I don't know if they would have reacted the same way, but I think a lot of them, despite how bad Tennessee has been, especially in the first half of the season, I think a lot of them have, have not given up on Jeremy Pruitt. So they're supporting him in this way. Um, if this happened 
I'd be curious how they would have reacted if Butch Jones had done this at the end, you know, in his last season, if they would have reacted the same way, if they would have backed him the same way. Well, it's one of those, you know, this is not unique to Tennessee fans. It's one of those, hey, 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 you can't criticize my coach. Only I can criticize my coach. Because every one of those people who was defending him and, and ripping him, ripping me or anybody else that brought this up has ripped Jeremy Pruitt, I'm sure, countless times this season when they were losing to Georgia State or whoever. But when it's coming from an outsider, uh, then you then you rally and you, you defend your guy. Um, I, I think that a lot of things, I, I understand. It's football. It's an emotional game. This happened you know, very quickly, obviously. And so he's the obvious target there. But a lot of things had to happen for that moment to even be possible, including you know, they got stuffed three plays in a row trying to run the ball. Um, also, by the way, he wasn't even supposed to be in there. He's only in there. He's the backup now. He's only in there because the starter got hurt, got a concussion. So um, I don't know. There, there's just so many things that you could point the finger at. But this was the play that, that, that obviously kind of – ended the game for them so uh we could have this debate for 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 ad nauseum all i would say is you know if you if you if logical people want to say uh in the heat of the moment this wasn't the worst thing in the world okay the only thing i don't like is this is the way it was when i was a player so this is there's nothing wrong with it um there's a lot of things that happened when we were younger that would not be acceptable today Bobby Knight would have been fired so early into his Indiana tenure if this were today. The things that he did back then that people just kind of um, either overlooked or were like, yeah, you know, he's teaching them. You know, it's that we talked about this with the name, image, and likeness. There, there is still a faction that's like, you know, put those kids in their place. They're, they're, they, they need a lesson. And, and I, I don't have a tolerance for that anymore. Unless they did something they, they, they truly screwed up and, and need a lesson about. Um doing the quarterback sneak wrong does not fall into that category for me. Um, the other game, I didn't, I would not have guessed Tennessee, Alabama would be the game we'd end up talking about the most. Um, obviously the, the most impactful result of the weekend, Wisconsin, who had been so dominant in their first six games, goes and finds a way to lose at Illinois. Lovey Smith's signature moment so far. Biggest 30-and-a-half-point underdog, biggest point spread upset by a Big Ten team since 1982. And what this did most immediately is just totally uh, pop all the air out of what was supposed to be a really big game this weekend in Columbus. Game day's not going there anymore. I'm not going there anymore. Um, so before – I don't – well, w- w- I want to talk about Ohio State with you because you just saw them in person last weekend. But in terms of Wisconsin real quick – Sometimes upsets like Georgia's, I would give as an example last week, point to other problems that have been going on under the surface. Well, time will tell, but I have a feeling this will prove to be one of those just weird, fluky, I have no explanation for why that happened losses. Do you come away thinking that Wisconsin is still a top 10 team, or do you think they were exposed? Uh, No, I can't come away from it saying they're a top 10 team right now. But would it surprise me if they and then they're gonna probably lose to Ohio State this week? But then would it surprise me if they turned around and finished ten and two? No, we saw enough of them. The, we we saw enough of them playing at a high level the first six games. There was there was just nothing in those first six games that would suggest that was gonna happen. I don't know if they got caught looking ahead. I don't know if it's as simple as 
just everything that could go wrong went wrong late in that game with the Jack Cohn interception. And like they had chances to put that game away and they gave Illinois a shot. I, I don't know. Do you think it exposed something? I, to be honest, this is the second big upset in a week at, and in two weeks. I'm actually, in retrospect, more surprised that South Carolina went into Georgia and ended up beating them with their third-string quarterback than I am that Illinois beat Wisconsin. And that, again, because South Carolina was a two-win, two-and-three team at that point. Like I said, they were down to their third-string quarterback. The the Big Ten West, to me, is is hard to to go all in on. I just feel like no matter who comes out of there, I'm looking at Minnesota, they're 7-0. and We had Minnesota week one. It's not to say teams don't get better, but it was a very good 1-double-A team they were hosting in South Dakota State. And South Dakota State was leading and wouldn't have surprised me. You know, it felt like they were not significantly worse than Minnesota after watching that game. And so, and they're 7-0. and So, I, I don't know. I, I mean... I don't. I don't want to say that that they were they were exposed. I just think that Jack Cohen had a really good game against Michigan. I thought he's been playing well, but you know, if your quarterback isn't isn't, I I don't know. This is the part where I'm like, I guess I have a a lot more faith in in Jake Fromm and those and and that offensive line at Georgia than I did in Jack Cohen, and I think a little bit of that was exposed. Did you did you catch any of or even know what happened the week? Like, the, don't get me wrong, Georgia South Carolina still shocking upset, but a little bit of context on both ends here. In the four games before beating number six Wisconsin, Illinois lost thirty four thirty one to Eastern Michigan, forty two thirty eight to Nebraska, forty to seventeen to Minnesota, and forty two to twenty five to Michigan. You can't tell me that's not more shocking than. South Carolina, Georgia, especially given that the following week, Jake Fromm, this past Saturday night, threw for 35 yards total, granted in a a downpouring rain, but against a Kentucky team that was literally starting its receiver at quarterback, and I believe he didn't complete a pass until the fourth quarter. Georgia has problems, and I think South Carolina exposed those problems. Uh, If it turns out Wisconsin has problems, so be it. But as of this moment, there was just there's just no connection. There's nothing that either Wisconsin or Illinois did leading into that game that would have suggested that was even remotely possible. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm not. I'm um, maybe this is something of, of the South Carolina side of this. I just I just didn't expect that. And again, I had more confidence in Georgia top to bottom talent wise than I guess I did in in uh, in Wisconsin at the end of the day. I mean, I'm not going to try to tell you. I saw that, you know, I saw that coming. I mean, look, um, yeah, it's, look, they, Illinois barely beat a horrible UConn team, to be honest, or before some of those losses. So, I don't know, maybe you're right. And uh, I will say this, now, I mean, if you were an odds maker with what what Wisconsin did last week and how well Ohio State's playing, what would you have put the spread at? It was actually lower than I thought it would be. Uh, I thought it would be closer to 20, but it's, uh, what is it, 12? Yeah, I mean, after seeing Ohio State in person, this is the most impressive team I've seen. I haven't seen 
LSU in person. I have not seen Clemson or Alabama. I have seen Oklahoma, and I've seen, to me, what's different about them is they have so many difference makers on defense to go with Justin Fields, to go with a deep core of receivers, to go with a really underrated, terrific running back in J.K. Dobbins. I mean, they have they can beat you so many different ways. And what really struck me, and this is from being around them a little bit the night before the game and then being around them you know, throughout the game on the sideline, uh, there is an energy that they have. You see it from Chase Young. You see it from a lot of their key guys that feels different than it has. I was around them uh, in the previous couple of years for a couple of times a year. And this team feels a lot looser uh, and I think a lot more confident than at least the vibe I got from the one last year, certainly. And granted, there was a lot of drama that was hovering around that team last year. And I just don't think there's any of that right now. And they're playing pretty free and they're playing really well. Ohio State, the both of the last two years, obviously, could have been in the playoff, cost them themselves a shot by having, but just these inexplicable uh, road losses, blowout road losses to um, to Iowa and then to Purdue last year. And so there was some concern that something like that could happen. I just think everybody realized Northwestern was, was not as good as those teams and couldn't pull it off. And I do wonder if that is something to the if – you, if you look back at Urban Meyer over the years, and I've noticed this going back to Florida, he's much more comfortable being the, the – um, under the radar team than the everybody's gunning for you team. If you look at the years he won, I mean, the 2014 team that won the national title was discounted by everybody after they lost, after they both they lost Braxton Miller in the preseason and lost to Virginia Tech in week two, and then lost JT Barrett. So that whole postseason run, it was just like playing with house money. Um, but then in later years where the, the, the standard was perfection, because of everything you just said earlier, all the talent they have. Um, it was like they were always kind of walking this tight rope. And, yeah, they would get big wins, but then they could just, when, when things started to go south, they really went south. So I think there's something to the fact that Matt Ryan Day has instilled, I don't want to say looser, but, like, they're not on edge as much. And they're able to just play football. And... Uh, I'll tell you what, I, certainly I expected them to blow out Northwestern. I did not expect them to put up 52 just because as bad as Northwestern is on offense and they may be the worst team in the country in offense, they're actually pretty good on defense, as you know. They've got some guys, and they, uh, in Bill Connolly's rankings, they actually went into that game fifth in the country in defensive efficiency, and obviously they had absolutely no answer for Ohio State. So I, I, this, to me, and I know it's been a soft schedule and you got to you got to couch that. And if anything, Wisconsin will be the first team they've played that um, I think will be physical with them, uh, even if they necessarily can't necessarily, can't necessarily beat them. But I'm sorry, it's seven games into the season, and they've won every game by at least 20 points. They're doing something right. And I just think they're loaded at every position. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you. I, I just think right now... It's a really interesting vibe around the program, and I give Ryan Day a lot of credit. I think the staff he has hired and added, you know, he retained some of the key guys that were holdovers for from Urban Meyer, and that's Mickey Marotti, who re- really runs the development piece of this and has since, since they got there. And obviously the recruiting side is still the same, and Larry Johnson 
and Greg Sudrow are the, are the line coaches on both sides of the ball. Those guys, I think, are really good at what they do. Um, I don't know. I, I'll i say this, and I have a, a column about Ohio State that's coming up on The Athletic probably Tuesday. After seeing them today, and like I said, I haven't seen LSU in person play this year, and I've seen them in the I saw them practice in the spring, but not certainly not play. Uh, there's nobody right now I would pick over this Ohio State team because I just think they're playing really, really well. And you watch how Clemson has played where it seems like Clemson is making a lot of mistakes. And I don't feel like, I'm not saying Ohio State's playing perfect, but I think right now they are, they are playing really free and they're playing really smart. And that's a hard balance to pull off. And I just think they're get they're really kind of taking their cues from from some people who I think are are setting a really good tone for it. Clemson, I by the way, I think is another example of exactly what I was just talking about with Ohio State. Um, that 2015 team comes to mind, coming off the national title, and the expectations were just perfection. Uh, Florida State, the second year of Jameis, Clemson's and Trevor Lawrence in particular, who's thrown eight interceptions now, twice what he had last season, seems like a team that is. It's in, it's impossible for them to to match what people expect of them, and so they play a little tight sometimes. And they did end up blowing out Louisville, but didn't get off to a great start. And it's been kind of a recurring theme for them. And I it's you see this when, the, when there's a defending national champion, and especially when they've built up a what are they now 21 straight wins. It's like every game you're expected to be you're expected to win 50, 52 to three, and that's not always realistic. But Dabo did have a pretty good quote about um, Sunday night about dropping another spot in the AP poll. We are winning by an average of 28 points, and last year this time we were winning by 28.7 points. That 0.7 is elusive, but we'll keep working. Uh, So at least he's having some fun with it. But I agree. Ohio State is a team I would probably ride right now. I do have LSU number one because I think they deserve it from resume. They've, They've beaten two teams that are much better than anybody Ohio State's faced. They have a chance to add another top 10 win this week against Auburn. It's crazy to me that they could play that many of those kind of games before they even get to Alabama. Uh, I think the difference there is that offense is unbelievable. I think, I, I think you know, I give a lot of credit to Joe Burrow, but what the things that Joe Brady's doing, it reminds me of when Chip was at Oregon. You can just tell that teams have no idea how to defend it. Um, maybe give them an off season to study it and they might be better, but a week's time, they don't know what to do. Uh, but the defense is, has been exposed at times this season. And to this point, Ohio States has not. Yeah. At least on the defense though. I mean, they started to get healthy last week. I mean, they were playing without a bunch of their starters on the, on, in the front seven for a lot of this year. I'm not saying this is, this is not a great LSU defense when healthy, but I do think that some of what you've seen is they were playing with a lot of second and third teamers. I think that they should be healthier than they've been at any point this year when they play Auburn. I mean, I expect, I think they're going to get Terrace Marshall back. He's missed pretty much the last month. He's one of their starting receivers. And they're pretty healthy finally in the, in the front seven. That, that was an issue before. So we'll see how much of a difference it makes. Um, back for Clemson, just to throw this out at you, because obviously they were struggling at half before before blowing out Louisville. They don't play anybody especially good the rest of the way in the regular, in the, in the regular season. Host BC, 
got FCS Wofford at, a, at NC State, then Wake Forest, and then at South Carolina. If somehow they stumble, do you think that even going 12-1, and winning the ACC, having been the defending national champs, because their schedule in the regular season is so mediocre, how much do you think the playoff committee would hold? I mean, is it one? Do they have no margin for error if they lose? I think they have no margin for error. The conference is so bad. I think the only chance they have that they're going to beat, get to play and beat a team, because you know it's all about when you get to the last Sunday, the committee being able to say you beat two top twenty-five teams or three. It, I think three has been for the most part the minimum. Uh, they're going to be fortunate to have one. I could see either Virginia or Pitt who are both 5-2 and two right now, getting to the ACC title game ranked high enough that they would stay in the top 25 if they beat them. And that's about it. You know, Wake looks like they'll tr- tread on the margins uh, possibly. So, no, I don't think they can afford a loss. And I will also say that if the committee was putting out rankings right now, I don't think it would look like the AP poll. Um, I think it would be either LSU 1, Ohio State 2, or Ohio State 1, LSU 2, Alabama three, Clemson four, possibly even Oklahoma ahead of Clemson because they have that Texas win. Schedule strength matters, and unfortunately for Clemson, their schedule is just turned into a, a an absolute joke. So I don't think you can uh, just say, "Hey, they're the defending national champions; they have to be in." Um, if if they lose a game, and they it's not so much losing the game; it's how do you justify a 12 and one if they have one top 25 win the whole season? Cause I think the other contenders will have at least two, if not three or four. Uh, Stu real quick, since you mentioned Texas and that t- to me, the Texas win for Oklahoma, that's not looking so great. But what I wanted to bring that up a little bit of an audible on the audible uh, in this off season, I want to do a mea culpa because I said, and I wasn't the only one who said this, but, I thought the less miles higher at Kansas would be disastrous. And I watched a lot of that game on Longhorn Network. Kansas gave Texas on the road all they could handle, and Texas was very fortunate to win 50-48. to 48. Uh, Kansas, less miles team, crushed BC at BC. They are very competitive. And no matter what, this has not been a disaster, and it doesn't look like it's going to be a disaster. And so... Shout out to Les Miles. You've, you've certainly proved me wrong. I'm not I'm not buying that they're going to be a bowl team at this point, but they are playing a lot better than I thought they would, and he deserves credit for that. Well, I'll give you – there's one thing he definitely deserves credit for. People raised their eyebrows a little bit when he fired his, offensive, his first offensive coordinator already. He promoted a guy named Brent Deerman, who I, I don't know about you, I had never heard of until – actually until they beat BC and – there was he you know there was some it was the first game i think where they were okay hey they're doing less is actually doing rpos he's actually modernized his offense and this was the guy who was getting credit for it but at the time he wasn't even a um, on-field assistant he last year at this time kansas's current offensive coordinator was the head coach at naia bethel college before that he was at arkansas tech he was an analyst at Auburn for a couple seasons. He was a high school coach before that. So this guy, in his first game as offensive coordinator, they put up 48 points in Austin against Texas. That's impressive. Yes. Stu, if you had read my story on 
our former site, foxsports.com, a look inside the world of RPOs, you'd be familiar with Brent Dearman. Oh, boy. that You got me back for the uh, comment a couple. So, wait, how long ago was that? Two years ago? Three years ago? 2016, March 25th. Brent Dearman, the offensive coordinator of Arkansas Tech, is mentioned in the third paragraph of the story. Okay, well, if that's the case, if he was well-known enough to be in the third paragraph of one of your stories in 2016, how on earth was he still in NAIA as of last season? This, 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 he's Kansas's Joe Brady, it seems like. I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. I, have to, uh, I can't take full credits for this. My uh, former colleague, Mike Kuchar from the X and O Labs, was the one who's been touting Brent Dearman for a while. He actually mentioned him or texted me about Dearman when this coaching move was made. And so, look, it, Les has made a smart move. And I, you know, you know, I talked about this. I think the most overlooked aspect of how good a head coach is is who he's able to hire on his staff. A lot of times people don't give credit to the head coach for the hires they make. That's critical. And give credit to Les Miles. This apparently was a very, very shrewd hire he has made. Uh, let's move on quickly because we'll, there were two, two games that I thought were really fun watches. One was in the Pac-12 up in Seattle, and we'll get to that in a minute. The other one was in the Big Ten. It was the whiteout. It was in Happy Valley. And there was a, it was a lot going on there. Penn State looked like they were going to blow out Michigan, just like Michigan looked like they were going to lay a big egg like they did against Wisconsin, whatever it was, three weeks ago. And the game got very interesting. So were you more impressed by Penn State or more disappointed by Michigan? I wasn't disappointed in Michigan. I actually, that's the most uh, confidence-inspiring performance they've had all season. They were down 21-0. They looked like they were going to be blown out of the building. And they came back, and if not for a drop touchdown pass, would have possibly sent the game to overtime. Uh, it was the first time in one, against a good team, as opposed to maybe Rutgers, um, that their offense looked like it came to life a little bit. Now, the thing with Penn State that's a little bit maddening to me is you can tell, and you saw it in this game, they have got some playmakers on offense. And if you had only watched the highlights of that game, and you saw the two long K.J. Hamler touchdowns, and you saw the long Ricky Slade run, uh, and a couple other great Sean Clifford deep throws, you would have thought, oh, man, they shredded Don Brown's defense. No, actually, they didn't even get to 300 yards on the night. So it was very, very boomer bust, and it's been that way uh, for the most part all season. And I don't know what exactly is going on there. If the offense could kind of be consistent over the course of the game, to go with their very good defense, they would they would be uh, I, I would think very very highly of them. Right now, I'm a little bit puzzled about why that offense is so capable of big plays, but also can often go many drives without moving the football forward. But uh, what was your takeaway? Yeah, I think there's I think what you see is a pretty inexperienced offense that has definitely. Penn State has a ton of speed on both sides of the ball now. I think that's a, you know, that's a reflection of how James Franklin has recruited there. But I still think, you know, look, first time starting quarterback, relatively inexperienced running backs. And I, I think you're just seeing some guys where it is a little bit inconsistent. They definitely have firepower and big playability. What's, what was, uh, I think what was kind of stood out to me on watching that game 
was this is the this was actually the best I've seen Shea Patterson look, especially against a fast defense in a really hostile environment. They moved the ball well. They actually ran the ball at times pretty well with Zach Charbonnet. What they didn't do was they weren't able to hit those big, big plays as much as Penn State was, and that was ultimately the difference. Um, you know, I, I think we saw. I'm curious to see where Michigan is going to be by the end of the year because they definitely have improved. Now, does that mean, like, what? I'm going to ask you this: If they beat Notre Dame, what do you make of them at that point? Because Notre Dame is a top, is a top ten team right now. I mean, is it? I guess when I look at it, this is because I feel like you cannot escape Jim Harbaugh's record at Michigan. What is it? One in ten against top ten teams. I mean, that is a that is a really eye-opening stat. But I think you have to, you know, nothing happens in a vacuum, so I think that's where that comes from. But I don't know. I mean, I think we have to evaluate people as, as how, where they go for the course of the year as opposed to what we may have thought of them in September. Well, it's, it would be great if they keep getting better. Um, but here's the thing. First of all, I was a little surprised they are actually favored against Notre Dame. I know they're playing at home. Um, I do feel better about them after last week's game, but they're still, I mean, I think it's pretty telling that a team that, that you were talking about is the, the big, everybody, not everybody, a lot of people picked to win the Big Ten. It's gone from, since the beginning of the season, it's gone from that to moral victory uh, in, in coming back and almost beating or almost taking Penn State to overtime. So to answer your question, yeah, a win over Notre Dame would be huge, no question about it, but probably ends up just being the difference between them going nine and three instead of eight and four and sorry but nine and three is not anything i think to brag about uh in the fifth season of the jim harbaugh era i'm not sure i see it i don't know if anybody saw this as a moral victory i don't know if i buy that part of it everybody saw it as a moral i mean i listened to andy and nicole's podcast saturday night i uh read some store everybody's like oh they they you know they uh they looked better like everybody had the same takeaway. Hey, they look better. You said it yourself. I, I mean, I think you can ha- you can you can hold two thoughts in your head. You can go, okay, like to me, it's like sometimes, and this is happens on Mondays. We get uh, we get kind of sucked into two two kind of things where it's either you either look great or you look terrible. I mean, you can look better and still lose. I mean, I don't. I would be surprised if Jim Harbaugh feels great about or feels uplifted by, hey, we got, we didn't get embarrassed. I mean, you still lost. Well, they were a nine-point underdog, and they lost by seven. So I don't know what your definition of moral victory is, but they made progress, and... I don't think I'm one who subscribed, subscribes to moral victories, though. Maybe that's what... I, I, believe me, I'm sure they don't consider it a moral victory. But I guess I would say outside of the Michigan locker room and maybe some diehard Michigan fans, no, nobody was expecting them to go and win that game. So so I, it's hard for me to come away from that and say that it wasn't any sort of indictment on them. They do look better, and I'm very interested to see how they do against the Notre Dame team that I think is pretty good. Um, and like I said, I'm a little surprised they're the underdog there. I think... I mean, one thing about Michigan that is still a problem is, like you said, Shea Patterson played better. Um, they got the running game going a little bit, but they still make a lot of unforced errors. You know, a lot of bad penalties. Obviously, I, I don't want to throw 
Ronnie Bell under the bus. I think that was really sad to see. He was crying at the end of the game. But obviously, I mean, kind of fitting of their season so far that, that a drop pass in the end zone was the deciding play there. And Notre Dame is not that. Notre Dame is an experienced team that knows what they're doing and does not beat themselves. So it's going to take, I think, a... I mean, certainly Michigan's going to have to play even better than they did this past week to win that game. All right, quickly on the Pac-12, Stu. Impressive win by the Ducks up in Seattle. They put up a lot of points against a very good, very talented defense in a tough place to play. Justin Herbert, by the way, not getting enough credit. Everyone is talking about Tua and Justin Fields and obviously Joe Burrow, and certainly they're talking about Jalen Hurts, but 22 touchdowns, one pick. He's playing very well on the road. Now, is there any shot if Oregon runs the table of them getting in the playoff? First of all, the reason he's not getting any credit is because he didn't beat Auburn. And for a lot of non-Pac-12 fans, that's the last time they bothered to watch him play. Hopefully some people saw this game because I thought it was a a really exciting game and he led a great comeback. Uh, I think it's going to be an interesting discussion because... And first of all, I don't know that it's a given that they're going to beat Utah. I think it'll end up being Oregon-Utah in the Pac-12 title game. Utah beat ASU 21-3 the other night in, in some really bad weather. But we'll focus on Oregon for now. Um, Adam Rittenberg from ESPN tweeted this earlier. If they go 12-1 and and don't make the playoff, you're going to see... Larry Scott, to this point, has been very um, blasé about playoff expansion and not really pushing for it at all. Uh, I think you're going to see that change if that happens because basically... If they go 12-1 and don't make it, it'll be because they scheduled Auburn and lost. If they had scheduled an FCS team and won and they end up 13-0, and they'd be in the playoff. And, and obviously that's the opposite of what the playoff is supposed to incentivize. They're supposed to be um, encouraged to schedule games like that. So uh, that would be very interesting to see what happens. And I don't think they would be... I think they would get strong consideration. It's always hard to, to have these discussions in late October like without knowing who the other contenders are going to be. Is Oklahoma going to be 13-0 uh, Big 12 champion, or are they going to be 12-1 and or even 11-2 and Big 12 champion? Is Ohio State going to lose at some point, and people are going to say, well, they didn't play that strong a schedule, you know? You just you don't know who that 12-1 and Oregon team will be compared to. But I think they would be in the back of the pack among Power 5 champs, except for, as we said earlier, if Clemson is 12-1. and one. Defending champ or not, it's gonna, it would be very hard to justify that. I think Oregon will at least have, if nothing else, Utah, and probably at least another uh, one to two top 25 wins. All right. Uh, let's get to the mailbag because we're running a little long. Yeah, and we got some great mailbag questions this week. Send your questions, if, as always, every week. Send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. The first one uh, is about a really uh, unique situation that happened in a game on Saturday that not a lot of people got to see. I couldn't even figure out who was showing the game. I ended up getting it on the ESPN app, and that was uh, the Virginia Tech-UNC game that went to six overtimes. Virginia Tech ended up winning, and it was the first time we've had a game in this new format that they instituted after the um, LSU A&M game last year, where after the fourth overtime, it becomes basically a two-point conversion shootout. Ben from Charlotte, Stu and Bruce, I just left the six-overtime Virginia Tech-UNC game. Wow. 
Did you know the new OT rule of a two-point conversion contest after the fourth OT? My buddy Bradford was lobbying for a punt passing kick contest if it made it to seven OTs. So between this email and a comment I saw in Andy Bitter's story of the game from one of the Virginia Tech players who himself was puzzled why they were all running after, off the field after the first play, it makes you realize this was kind of an obscure rule change and, no, and most people don't even know about it yet. I really enjoyed it. I thought after they made the rule change that it was going to seem really bizarre. It actually felt quite natural because by that point in the game, both teams were missing field goals like crazy. And that is something about overtime. It becomes disproportionately affected by how good your field goal kicker is. This was, you get one shot, the next team gets one shot. Let's see who makes it. Yeah, and look, I mean, this is a rule I think we we probably had talked about uh, in the preseason and the offseason. And some of this stuff, I obviously this, you stem back to uh, last year's Texas A&M LSU game, the 74-72 game where people worry about it's health issues of those games getting so long. And so the NCAA and, and the AFCA wanted to try to get out in front of this a little bit. I mean, do you feel like there's a better way to handle it? Not only do I don't think there's a better way to handle it, I'm kind of ready. Well, I'd like to see more than one of them. Based off this first game, I'm ready to say let's do it starting in the third overtime. Because, you know, like the case with that LSU and AM game, I just think by the time you get past the first or second overtime, the defenses are so gassed, you're not even really watching real football at that time. You're just it's it's who's gonna miss their field goals and and you know after you have to go for two after the touchdowns anyway. So in many ways, it's already being determined by who can make their two point conversions. This felt very much like a uh, penalty kick shootout in soccer or a. Um, a 7-6 a, a tiebreaker in tennis. We've been playing long enough. Each team has had plenty of chances to win this game. Let's just decide it. Now, I will say Mac Brown could use some help with his two-point play calling. Um, we, you know, a really bizarre call against Clemson on that one that was to make or break that game. And then both of their two-point conversion attempts in, over, in the overtimes of this one went backward. Uh, Virginia Tech got theirs. They win the game. I liked it. What do you think? I like it. I mean, I like the overtime rules. I, I kind of gotten used to it. It's one of these things where I think fans adapt when they do. And I do think that it's it's the right thing. to, to You can't have these games go on and on because it's great for us if we're sitting on the couch and the drama gets ratcheted up and everything. But there are there is a physical toll that's taken on these on these kids. And I think that something needed to be done. So I'm I'm okay with it. Our next question from Brian Johannes is uh, related to the game you've got coming up this weekend. You're heading to the TCU-Texas game, and he says, Gentlemen, I'm curious your thoughts on TCU and where they are going. Back in 2014 and 15, they were the Big 12 elite and even had an 11-win season as recently as 2017. However, they were 7-6 and six last year and might be in store for a 6-win season this year. Gary Patterson is widely considered a top-10 coach whenever people put out those lists. For a guy who's considered such a good coach and a program that has had such success— and in the state of Texas, what has happened? I feel the same way. I'm I'm a huge Gary Patterson guy. I'm okay with one down season here or there, but it seems to be that we are um, now in the midst of what would be their probably their th- their third mediocre season in the last four years. Yeah, it's surprising a little bit, just because like you, I have a ton of respect for him, especially on the defensive side of the ball. They have really got a lot of athleticism. Now, they are playing with a true freshman quarterback, Max Duggan, who's playing pretty well. Um, 
it's I'm curious to see how they respond because and not to hype up our game too much, but Texas had their hands full with Kansas last week. This is not going to be an easy uh, situation to go go against a team that really takes this, you know, I don't want to say it's a little brother kind of dynamic, but obviously TCU, their old AD is now the AD at Texas, and I, I think this is – Gary Patterson's done well in this series before. So you want to see how they respond because right now I think there's a lot of people going, what is going on here? Did they plateau? Did – you know, you look at it, Baylor has been, outside of Oklahoma, has been really the most impressive team. Iowa State's having, you know, this has gotten some momentum. And I'm curious to see what we get from TCU because I actually thought they'd be a lot better than they've been so far. I do think that it, in many ways, I mean, it's not just this, but uh, the quarterback position really, they've, they've really struggled. Um, post Trevon Boykin was such a good quarterback there. And then they've just kind of, other than one good year with um, Kenny Hill, they've really struggled with that position. Now he's put it in the hands of the true freshman. He had a one ridiculous run the other day where he literally stiff-armed a guy so hard that his helmet bounced off the turf. Uh, but, I, you know, he's not playing at that high level in general. And so they're still playing good defense like his teams usually do. But we're now into the second year of an offense that, if you saw the Cheez-It Bowl, uh, you know what kind of state they've been in. So they need to get that going. I think Texas is going to catch a little bit of a break here in that clearly their their problems right now are, are mostly on the defensive side of the ball where they've been so banged up, and I don't know whether TCU can exploit that. But uh, halfway through the season, they're only 3-3. Three and three. We'll see how they play down the stretch. Stu, the next one is from James Birdsong. Hey, Bruce and Stu, the only two unbeaten group of five teams left are SMU and Appalachian State. If SMU were to slip up down the stretch, would an undefeated App State team get in over a one-loss Mountain West or AAC champ? It's a great question. Um, you know, the initial instinct is the Sun Belt is so bad and, and clearly not... Um, the difference between the American and the Sun Belt or even the Mountain West and the Sun Belt is pretty pretty profound. And the committee puts so much into strength schedule, you know, my initial instinct is no. They probably would not get in over, say, 12-1 SMU or 12-1 Boise State. However, Appalachian State has already beaten UNC, and they play a game. To, for an, in order for them to go undefeated, they're going to have to win at South Carolina. I know you are not the world's biggest South Carolina fan, but that would still be a win against an SEC team that will probably end up around 6-6 six and six or 7-5. and five. So it would basically just be how much weight do they put on those two as opposed to the uh, Sun Belt games. I still think probably knowing how they've treated a group of five teams to this point, they would probably still go with the, the AAC team or the Mountain West team that played a better schedule overall rather than rewarding them for that one or two Power 5 games. And also, I mean, SMU beat TCU... Boise beat Florida State. It's not like they would be alone and having a Power 5 win. Um, but it would be a cool story. I mean, Appalachian State is uh, is one of the most successful teams if it, to, to ever make that move up. But usually when a team makes the move from FCS to FBS, it takes a while to become competitive. They were competitive from day one. They've been a 10-11 win team every year. And uh, certainly going undefeated would be, with, with wins over an SEC and ACC team, would be quite the feat. Ken in South Carolina, Florida fan, 
He's in South Carolina, but he's a Florida fan. Long time, first time. Thanks for writing in, Ken. What do you think about when former NFL coaches come to college and struggle? Is it about better coaching in college, lack of their ability in recruiting and development of players, or just fundamentally different X's and O's? I was thinking about this after the Illinois upset of Wisconsin and Lovey Smith. Uh, look, I mean, I think the first name that came to mind of an NFL guy coming back was Herm, and Herm's done you know, they lost this past weekend, but Herm's done better than a lot of us thought he would do at Arizona State. And I think, again, this to me goes back to who do you hire on your staff? Herm made a really good hire with Danny Gonzalez to run the defense. And I think he's he's surrounded himself with some, some really good assistants, and it's worked out well. Including Marvin Lewis. Yeah, again, Marvin Lewis was an NFL guy, but I mean, he's a support staff guy in terms of in terms of that role, but I don't know. I mean, who are the guys that that come to mind of NFL guys? Jim Mora came back. I don't want to. I don't think it was a disastrous run. Jim Mora beat USC three times in a row his first three years and had had some really good teams at UCLA. I've written about this many times. The list of NFL coaches in my time covering the sport who have who you would say were successes in college is pretty short. There's one obvious outlier in Pete Carroll, and then. You know, who would you put in after that? I mean, I'll give you the list of, off the top of my head, guys you would not put in that list. Chan Gailey, Bill Callahan, Mike Sherman, although he certainly recruited very well. Um, uh, who else? I mean, Jim Mora had results early on. Obviously, that didn't that didn't play out uh, very well in the end. Al Groh, uh, it, it. I just think it comes – it's the same reason why how come so many college coaches that are very good in college don't succeed in the NFL – they're basically two different sports. They may be the same sports, uh, you know, for those 60 minutes on Saturday or Sunday, but pretty much everything else about the other 365 days of the year is different. You're coaching paid adults versus amateur college kids. You're, uh, you have to recruit in college and NFL, they, you draft the players and the free agents and they're, you're basically, if you're a coach, you're basically assigned a team and have to go figure out, um, the best way to, to put them in position to succeed. College players, you have to deal with academics. You have to deal with a guy might get in trouble and do I need to suspend him or not? Um, I just I just think they're two t- totally different jobs and not necessarily one is going to necessarily uh, translate to the other. Also, I think some of these guys in terms of the, the quote-unquote NFL guys, you mentioned Pete, I mentioned Marvin Lewis, and those guys are really high-energy, optimistic-by-nature people. And I think some of the guys you mentioned who struggled a little more were kind of the opposite. And sometimes that, that can work better probably with grown men than it does with trying to recruit 17 and 18 year olds and trying to, trying to ride the roller coaster of their maturity. We almost forgot the, uh, the, the, the poster for your NFL prowess not succeeding in college. Mr. Schematic Advantage himself, Char- Charlie Weiss. <laughs> Uh, Alex in Los Angeles, with all of the Urban Meyer to USC talk, I'm left wondering why Bob Stoops to USC does not get mentioned at all. He somewhat came out of retirement for his current uh, XFL gig, so there's certainly some passion left, and wouldn't he be a very good fit with less baggage than Urban at USC? Does he want to co- – to me, coaching in the XFL does not require the kind of energy it takes to recruit 365 days a year – and deal with college athletes and everything that goes around them. If Bob Stoops wants to go back and do that, if I'm USC, I would really be interested in him. 
But I don't know if Bob Stoops wants to coach at that kind of pace at this stage of his life. I mean, if you can tell me he does, that's a different story, but I'm not, I'm not sure he does. No, he seems to be very much enjoying the uh, show up on the sideline and watch for three hours and then be done with it. And the XFL affords him that opportunity to, to scratch the coaching itch a little bit, but not in a very intense way. I mean, it's not going to be a year-round um, consumption. Uh, he's certainly not going to be scrutinized the way the head coach of USC is if he doesn't succeed in the XFL. So uh, it just doesn't seem viable to, viable to me unless – over the last year or so, he's had a had a change of heart um, about his feelings about being back in coaching. He was pretty clear about the reasons he stepped away when he did, and uh, he seems much more content in retirement. Whereas Urban Meyer basically open, lob, <laughs> openly lobbied for the Dallas Cowboys job on Colin Cowherd's show last week. So uh, I'm less and less certain that he's still you're still going to be able to call him uh, Fox colleague this time next year. All right, well, we run out of time for this week. As always, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com and come back Thursday uh, for the Audible Extra. That's our podcast. That's an episode that's available exclusively on the Athletics app. We'll see you next time. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.